Blog Talk Radio. Satellites in the skies broadcasting live 
tracking who we meet and call this liberty.
the the in the news recently, and I don't even know where to begin because uh, you know we've talked about this before. It seems that that right now, and I know throughout history, it's not like a that, that things have always been smoothly and gone on an even kill or, uh, until all of a sudden the current administration. It's not like that at all. There's always been, uh, there's always stuff going on. Our world is, uh, is an active, dynamic, dangerous place. And, uh, and things are always going on. But it just seems like for the last few years that that there has been nonstop uh, uh, scandals and that that each one seems to be bigger than the next and and people have almost grown uh, grown calluses on their their ears and their minds and and things like having the government saying that uh, they've misplaced eight hundred billion dollars. Or uh, heck, uh, uh, six or seven years ago, what was it? Almost a trillion. And people go, "Oh my gosh, the government uh, has misplaced uh, eight hundred billion dollars." Man, that's just that's horrible. And that's all that's done. That's all that the the events occurring in the Middle East now. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. And and we will continue. Uh, to advise you on ensuring that you are doing everything that you can to try and make sure that you can take care of yourself and your loved ones, your family, uh, in the event of some type of natural or man-made disaster or cessation of services. Uh, certainly, you can continue to put pressure on your your representatives to try and make sure that they are paying attention to the things that you would like them to pay attention to. And uh, that's not always, uh, everybody has their own, their, own things, their own things that they would like to make sure that their reps are paying attention to. Sometimes they're the same as mine, sometimes they're not. But the only way they're going to know uh, your needs, your desires, is by you making sure that you contact them. All right? You can do that. You can make sure that you're plugged in to the world around you about things that are going on, not just in America, but around the world. Listen to other uh, news sources. Listen to BBC. Listen, uh, do your own research uh, on the Internet. Uh, if you've got the ra- uh, shortwave radio, listen to other uh, news broadcasts from around the world. Try and get as much information as you can so you can make the best informed decisions possible. And all doing this, make sure that you have begun your prep. Make sure that you have begun uh, not a mad dash to uh, Kroger's or H-E-B or Walmart to try and buy batteries and, uh, and water, bottled water. Uh, try and go about it in, as in living a lifestyle that includes prepping. And that means working on your prep every week, all right? Try, please try and and insert this into your lifestyle. So that if something does happen, then uh, then you'll have uh, 
you'll be better prepared for you and your family. And listen, this doesn't have to be just in the event of any disasters. Looking for the best deals, uh, growing some of your own food, uh, learning how to do things on your own and, and uh, so that you're not having to, uh, to pay or hire everything done. These are all things that can benefit you in your life regardless of, of anything else happening. Learning how to uh, go out and buy a, a bushel of cucumbers and make pickles, uh, you know, make, uh, you know, a couple of gallons of pickles. Uh, all of that stuff is stuff that can save you money, uh, that you can be proud of doing. You can have pride whenever you pop open a can of uh, pickles that you made. Uh, learning to put away food like that uh, by canning. Learning to grow your own food. These are all things that you can uh, you can become invested in, and that you can be proud of, and that will save you money. Right? Eating the food that you've grown uh, is also much is going to be much healthier. I don't care what anybody says. I guarantee it's going to be healthier uh, because you're going to there's going to be less space that it traveled. There's going to be fewer people that have touched it. Uh, you can control what uh, is in the soil uh, that is uh, nurturing the uh, the fruits or vegetables that you're growing. It's going to be healthier, and you're going to have some pride in it, and you're going to save money, right? So start inserting these into your lifestyle, these things, all right, so that you can be you can be living this lifestyle, not. Uh, not sitting there balance, uh, waiting for the starting gun to dash H.E. Beer Kroger's to try and get uh, enough to to uh, make yourself to to make it through a hurricane or, you know, a tornado or something like that. Start now. Start getting ready now, today, this week. Uh, and we've talked about this many times on the show, too, is that... Uh, if if something cannot go on forever, then at some point it has to end. <clears throat> the way that we uh, are nation, the way that we are are handling our nation's finances, cannot go on forever. All right, so at some point it's going to have to end. Now, I don't know what's going to happen when it does. Is it going to be uh, something that gradually uh, phases into a new uh, economic-type situation? <clears throat> or is it going to be a, a huge crashing black hole that's going to yank us all down with it? I, I, I don't know. But I can tell you this. It's not going to go on forever because it cannot. All right? I'm not trying to, 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 to try and sell you a boatload of doom and gloom. I'm just telling you that that you need to be prepared. Uh, so, all right, I said that about uh, ten different ways. I hope uh, I hope somehow it made it through. <clears throat> all right, uh, what you've got with us tonight, uh, John Hawes. He's the uh, precision rifle instructor for uh, Battle Road. And uh, he'll be down this uh, the next uh, ten days 
teaching the Battle Road USA five-day precision rifle course. And I'll be running from August 9th to the 13th. That's uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Immediately following that course, the uh, next weekend, the 16th and 17th, I'll be running a uh, two-day stocking and camouflage course. And I talked to you guys about this last week. Listen, the stocking and camouflage course is uh, its not just for law enforcement and military. Uh, if you are a hunter, then you must... Uh, uh, you will benefit from learning to move, uh, how to move undetected, under observation, uh, how to get into your position and remain there undetected until the opportunity for the shot presents itself. And uh, this is the same skills and techniques that you'll need for uh, deer, elk, bear, coyote, turkey, hog, whatever. These are the same things you'll need for it, all right? So if you are going to be free the 16th and 17th, uh, you can go to the BattleRoadUSA.com and uh, click on that. You'll come to the home page. On the home page, click on Training, and you'll see the Stalking and uh, Camo course. Click on that, and on that page will be a link for the registration. All right, so go ahead and get registered. <clears throat> We've got quite a few folks already attending, but uh, we still have room for more, and uh, uh, before the class ends, I'll give you the. Uh, I'll, or well, let me go ahead and give you the details on it right now for the stocking and camo course. Uh, or better yet, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to introduce John, and uh, and we'll, and during our discussion, we'll have him. Uh, we'll have him talk about what he's going to do and shooting all of his life. He's uh, he's been shooting for sports. He's been hunting. He's been shooting competitively since the age of 15. He has been he's a graduate of uh, five different uh, sniper courses, and he was employed by the United States Army as a sniper uh, on multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, on his last tour in Afghanistan, he was awarded the Silver Star uh, for a one of the engagements that he was in there. He'll be teaching the course, the five-day course that's coming up for us. And we're going to have him talk to us now about uh, about what he's going to be teaching and about the uh, all of the things that are involved in making the shot at distance. John, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time to uh, to speak to everyone tonight. Tell you what, it works better whenever I open his mic and do that. Hey, John, let me try that again. Thanks for uh, Thanks for coming on tonight and taking the time to... Uh, to speak to uh, the listeners tonight. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Uh, listen, uh, you'll be teaching the class, the upcoming class, uh, the 5 day Precision Rifle course, and uh, and then you'll be teaching the Stalking and Camouflage course the weekend after. But uh, we'd like to talk a bit tonight about uh, about the things that are involved in making the shot at distance. So, can you start off by giving us, uh, uh, you know, just giving us the baseline uh, information on? Uh, let's start off with the with the gear and stuff, uh, or you can start off any way you want with uh, with giving us uh, like an intro on 
or the things that are needed to make the shot at distance. Now, when it comes to the gear, the uh, most important aspect is having a quality rifle skill combination. And I put a big emphasis on quality because it doesn't need to be so much a you know, traditional bolt-action rifle that you picture a sniper having. Um, there's plenty of precision semi-autos out on the market now. Um, it's primarily you need a rifle that is of good quality, and with quality typically comes consistency. And that's the most important factor in having a repeatably accurate long-range rifle is you need consistency shot to shot that's going to be repeatable that you can gather data with that you'll be able to repeat, not something that's going to shift from day to day, uh, something that's going to get easily shifted and bumped around, uh, moving in a car. Yeah, you need a quality rifle with good optics. Um, you know, it's, the price point is all over the map. You can get into some quality rifles for... You know, six, seven hundred bucks, and from there the sky is the limit. And the same thing goes for optics. The uh, common calibers, uh, oh, sticking to the rifle real quick, one of the most important aspects in having that consistently repeatable rifle is that it has a free floated barrel, uh, meaning that the stock or anything else is going to come in contact with any part of the barrel. That way, during the shot, your barrel actually moves and it whips. And if anything interferes with that, it changes the width, especially shot to shot, and that's not good at all. So having a free-floated barrel is very important so that they're able to whip the same shot after shot, and the bullet is able to exit the muzzle and head down range at the same point every time. But uh, it doesn't need to have you know the big traditional heavy bull barrel. You know, having a long heavy bull barrel actually, you know does not make a rifle more accurate. There's plenty of lightweight barrels, um, short barrels, etc., that shoot just as well as your traditional bull barrels that you always see snipers with. Right. So, but like you said, if you're, if you're using a uh, uh, one of the Sydney autos, like the, like the AR platforms or something like that, that it does need to have uh, a free float barrel, that it can't be... Yeah. In order for it to be consistent, like you said, which is the most important aspect uh, of this, is consistency, knowing where the bolt's going to hit every time. It, it needs to have a free-floated barrel for the uh, for the semi-auto or AR types. Yes, no, definitely, without a doubt. Um, and on the rifle, the talking about the free-float barrel, what we're looking for through the accuracy requirement is that the rifle ideally be capable of shooting one minute of angle or better. Now, one minute of angle equates to approximately one inch per 100 meters or yards, whatever unit you're using. So if I shoot a five-round group at 100 yards, I'd want to keep all the shots within one inch. Uh, if I shoot a five-round group at 300 yards, I'd want to keep all the shots within three inches. And as long as the rifle is maintaining that or better, I consider that a precision rifle. Um, some people have more stringent standards. Some people have more relaxed standards than that. But ideally, a precision rifle should be capable of shooting one minute of angle or better. Have a free-floated barrel and you know, be a quality product. Uh, moving on from that, we have the calibers. And caliber is all a personal preference thing. It, and it, 
depends on a lot of factors such as availability of ammo, whether or not you're a hand loader, if you're going to be buying everything at your local sporting goods shop, um, or whatever. I tend to stick with the more common calibers, uh, 308, um, 223, 300 mag, and with those, I am a hand loader. And the good thing about that is being such common calibers, there's a lot of data to use and build off of to tailor my own loads. And if at any point I run out of hand loads or I don't feel like hand loading, you know, I forget my ammo at home or whatever, I can go into any large sport and good store in the country for the most part and pick up a box of match ammo in any of those calibers. I don't have to worry about it. But, uh, you know, you're just as well served shooting a... 260 Remington, you know, a 6x47 Lapua, um, you know, and any numerous amount of calibers that are out there. In the end, ideally, you want a caliber that's able to consistently shoot one minute of angle or better, and it's going to be comfortable to shoot all day. Um, you know, that's a big thing where a lot of people, you know, they go 30-odd 6, even the 300 wind mag that I like as well. Um, those can all have some punishing recoil on a long day at the range. And you might be able to shoot that five-round group in less than a, uh, under a minute of angle at the beginning of your range session. But after you put 50, 60, 80 rounds down range in one day, at the end of the day, that shoulder is going to feel it. So, you know, another factor, especially if it's, uh, you're going to be doing a lot of target shooting, doing a high round count, is you want to err on the side of a milder caliber that's going to be softer recoiling, but still shoot accurate for you. And in my opinion, there's no better caliber for that than the 308. The 308 covers the entire range um, out to 1,000 meters, uh, 1,000 yards, depending on the load, is still very mildly recoiling, you know, and inexpensive. Uh, so that's kind of like my go-to caliber. But when it comes to anybody else's choice, Hey, there's, you know, there's thousands to pick from, literally. Right, but like you said, you know, if you, uh, if you go with, uh, with one of the two uh, most common, the uh, five five six or two two three, and the or the three oh eight, uh, you're normally going to pay a little bit less for that ammunition, simply because there are so many manufacturers that will make. Uh, that ammunition, and uh, and the a lot of times it's a little bit less expensive than than most of the other calibers. Oh, certainly. And the uh, now going back to the rifle, uh, you talked about the, uh, uh, the the rifle, the scope, but. Uh, <clears throat> And, of course, guys, I have the knowledge of, I already haven't gone through this class. Uh, one of the other things that uh, that uh, you discussed that the rifle really, really needs to have uh, is a quality bipod. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bipod, I'm a big fan of bipods. They're some sort of rest. I like a bipod because it's portable. It's always going to be with me, you know, other than carrying a sandbag around my pocket. Uh, that can get pretty heavy right. all day. But uh, I don't – I've had a lot of bad experiences uh, dealing with people that skimp and buy cheap bipods. And, 
know, I'm not going to name any brands, but if you go to your local chain store and buy, you know, the knockoff of a Harris bipod from, you know, there's several companies out there making clones of it now. Uh, I've seen very few of those fold up over time. So it's, I only buy uh, Harris products, uh, Harris bipod products. Uh, they're lightweight, they're dependable, there's a ton of choices, but there's a lot of other good quality bipods out there too. Um, one by Atlas comes to mind, which is incredibly good. It blows a Harris out of the water, but very expensive at the same time. But uh, I would just highly recommend that people shy away from, you know, your, if you're paying, you know, when it comes to precision rifle with all your equipment, whether it's rifle, your optic, your bipod, whatever, you're going to get what you pay for. And if you continuously pick from the low end of the spectrum, that's the performance that you're going to get. And, you know, and that's, that's pretty much always proven itself true in my experience. Right. And, uh, and you and I have talked about this quite a few times. And, of course, you tell the folks uh, who attend the class and stuff that, that and you mentioned it a few minutes ago, if you can't scrimp on your optics, that uh, you should probably expect to play to what you paid for the rifle for your optics because uh, the whole the whole thing of shooting at distance. Now, you know, we've both been, we've both worked with Appleseed, so we know that uh, with iron sights, we should be able to shoot out to five, six, even seven or 800 meters with our iron sights. Mm-hmm. But that's not, uh, that's not always a feasible thing. And, and I don't want to jump ahead because I know you're going to talk about target detection and stuff later. But the the optics have to be quality and uh, and I think you and I were joking about this sometime last year about about the people that were putting that eBay aluminum uh, underneath their loophole scopes uh, that your your scope mounts uh, you know the rings and mounts have to be of uh, the best quality as well uh, as the glass and stuff because you have to make sure that that it's remaining consistent. It's not moving or or expanding or contracting with the heat of the rifle and stuff like that. So you have to have the best uh, mounts and rings too, right? Mm-hmm. No, definitely. You, the entire system, whether it's the scope, the rifle, the bipod, the stock, your scope rings, your base, all has to be quality. And, you know, I very much prefer buying quality um, steel mounts uh, base and rings. Uh, personally, uh, most of my rifles wear Leopold Mark IV, but anything from like Leopold, uh, the Mark IV series, Badger Ordnance, they're built incredibly tough, uh, very rugged, and they're repeatable. I can, I use a torque wrench, and that's another important part is consistency with your rifle, is making sure that all of your scope rings, uh, your action screws, you want them all torqued down to the proper spec, and you want to be able to have a torque wrench where you can check that from time to time and make sure it hasn't loosened up. And by torquing everything down to the same spec time after time, you're going to always have that consistently repeatable rifle. And, like, the scope rings uh, typically are on my Mark IV system. I torque them down to the actual uh, screw attached to the base. It's torqued down to 65 inch pounds. That's the same for the action screws for my rifle. The uh, 
I have a little, little small pocket wrench, uh, 65 inch pocket wrench, and I, every time I start a day at the range, I make sure that that's torqued down to 65 inch pounds, and I can guarantee that that first shot will always be dead on. You know, if I do my part, because I go through the process of having quality equipment and making sure that everything is too spec from the beginning. And if you skimp on buying, and I've seen this a lot, you know, guys go out, they buy a nice rifle, they'll buy a nice scope, but they go to, you know, their local Walmart and pick up a pair of $12 aluminum rings off the off the rack because that's always kind of an afterthought. You know, it's just they come with a little thumb screw, you know, to torque it down. And it's just, <laughs> you know, one is, you end up torquing one down to, 80-inch pounds with your screwdriver, and then you end up torquing the rear one down to, say, 50-inch pounds. And that creates inconsistencies. And it's not going to be repeatable over time through recoil. You've got to think of the force that's being exerted on the entire system through recoil with every shot that you take. And you need something quality that you'll be able to consistently, you know, bring back to, you know, to spec. Right, and the aluminum is going to... Uh, it's going to have movement with the heat. Right. Uh, so, it's, uh, you know, I certainly, many years ago, I learned that by doing exactly that, by saying, here, I'm going to save a little bit of money on this by using these aluminum uh, mounts and certainly, you know, as you're shooting and they start heating up and they start moving and your 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 impact begins to move mm-hmm. because the metal is moving. So, now, all of these stuff that you're using, you've got to commit to uh, to the quality gear to ensure that uh, that you can remain consistent. Yeah, and it's there is actually some quality aluminum stuff out there as well, but you know you're you're going to pay the price for it. But you know some companies make some very rugged quality aluminum mounts, um, scope rings, to save on weight. You know for ultralight rifles. And some of them are really great, you know, but you're certainly not going to be using the $12 rings from Walmart um, right. to get the same performance. Right. And let's talk about the, uh, for just a second, you don't have to go into a lot of detail, but people always, uh, they always ask, uh, or one of the questions they always ask, or what are the, uh, what are the things that your scope really needs to have? I mean, there's plenty of stuff that if you said my, my, uh, uh, my wonderful scope, if I could have everything I wanted, would have this on it, and you can name it all off. Uh, but uh, what are the what are the things that your scope uh, needs to have in order for it to be, uh, uh, you know, a decent, usable scope for, uh, for making the shot at distance? Uh, absolutely, hands down, the most important uh, aspect of the scope is repeatable and consistent adjustments and meaning that when I buy a scope and it says one click moves me a quarter inch at 100 yards, that it truly moves me a quarter inch at 100 yards. A lot of cheaper scopes or even some of the uh, scopes from some good brands that are from the lower lines per se, um, some of the more repeatable manufacturers, it might be marked, say, quarter minute adjustments at 100 meters or 100 yards and you find out through actual field use that sometimes there might be a little more, there might be a little less. And that can create a, a big headache if you don't realize this soon enough. 
especially when you start adding on a lot of clicks to shoot distance. You know, it's a big jump in clicks to go from 100 yards to 800 yards. And if your adjustments aren't true, you know, and you're actually moving a third of an inch instead of a quarter of an inch, that sounds minute and probably unnoticeable at 100 yards. But if I have to go 80 clicks to make that adjustment, if for 80 clicks I'm going, you know, an eighth of an inch more per click, I'm going to be way off target at distance. So right. I need a scope that's got adjustments that are true. You know, they actually move the amount that it says and that they're repeatable so that when I come up, say, 80 clicks on my scope, if I come back down 80, I should be right back to where I started and be, you know, dead on. You know, if it doesn't line back up, if I come up 80 clicks and back down 80 clicks and it puts me somewhere different than I began with, I've got a problem. The scope's not tracking properly. And that is no good at all uh, for trying to record, you know, your data, which is really important to keep a, a record of your zeros at distance. So right, and we, scope, we do that uh, that drill uh, right at the beginning, where you mm -hmm. run through everybody's uh, everyone's adjustments, and they they shoot that the box drill, and uh, and you're making the adjustments so that you start off at the center, and uh, and you're adding adjustments to the right, then to down, then to the left, then up, and then to the right again, so that you end up back in the exact same hole that you started from. And uh, yep. to uh, to check people's adjustments. But as you said, it's it's very important. And and I know too that uh, you know even some of the even some of the best scopes and stuff have their adjustments are not going to be. And with you shooting a rifle, they're not going to be exactly perfectly uh, measured uh, every time as far as, I mean, they should be repeatable. They should move the exact same amount every time. But you're going to need to record your data in order for you to understand how much they're moving so that you know for, the, for that particular rifle, that particular scope, how, you, how it's going to move, how many clicks you need to move, and you're only going to get that through recording uh, your data. Right, you've got to get out there, you've got to spend the time at the range, you know, putting rounds down range. You know, and it's, like you said, day one of the precision course, right after, you know, everybody thinks they got to get 100-yard zero, we go right into a box drill. You know, that way I can see if we're going to have problems for the next, you know, four and a half days when we push it out to distance. Um, another important thing is you've got to make sure that that scope is mounted square in your scope range, that it's not canted. You know, and the box drill will also point that out as well, because if we see that, you know, it might be tracking properly, but your shots are all kind of adjusting diagonally, more than likely your scope is canted in the mount. You know, and that's, we try to identify all those problems early on before we start making our adjustments at distance. Right. And, uh, and what else would be, uh, what else would be a must-have on the, on your optics, uh, other than the uh, precise and repeatable uh, uh, declinations on it. Right. Well, the true and consistent adjustments are by far the most important. After that, a lot of stuff kind of becomes personal preference. Uh, you, get, you need acceptable magnification 
for the distances you plan on shooting. Now, what do I mean? Acceptables, it depends on every single person's, you know, level of comfort. There's people that think that you need a 20-power scope to shoot a 1,000 yards, and that is certainly not the case at all. Um, the, for the longest time in the military, you know, a 6-10 power was kind of the standard. Uh, when I went to the U.S. Army Sniper School, you know, and all through my deployment in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, my 308s wore a fixed 10-power scope. Um, now, you know, the 308s still wear a, a maximum 10-power scope, and now it's a variable 3.5 to 10. Uh, so, you know, you don't need anything more than 10x education. You know, on top of that, we look back at, you know, World War II, you know, there was many very accomplished snipers, you know, and marksmen that were using, you know, two and a half and four power scopes and achieving phenomenal results. So ideally, uh, when it comes to magnification, I would recommend a variable power scope because that way it's easier to find a target at closer ranges, um, have the wider field of view that a lower end magnification affords us, you know, that I can zoom in on. And the range I typically look for in a scope is on the low end, three and a half to four and a half power, and on the high end, uh, ten to fourteen power. Um, you know, I can't think of many situations for practical field shooting where you really need to go beyond fourteen power. Um, you know, but there's a lot of scopes out on the market, and once again, it comes down to what what you're comfortable with. You know. If, if you're going to be more comfortable shooting a 618 power variable or, you know, a fixed 36 power scope, you know, so be it. You know, it comes down to personal preference. But personally, I like something between a variable scope of 3, three and 14 power. Um, so that's magnification. When it comes to scope diameter, uh, you get, typically you have 1-inch tubes and 30-millimeter tubes. There's you know, a couple other oddball sizes as well. But uh, one-inch tubes and 30-millimeter tubes, 30-millimeter tubes are becoming much more popular. They are traditionally stronger. They're a thicker tube. And typically you will get a um, wider field of view as well. Oh, I'm sorry, not a wider field of view. You, you may, you may not. It might have a wider field of view. It might allow a little more light in as well to pass through, get better clarity. But that is not always a guarantee because there are some companies that use inside of your scope is a piece called an erector tube, and that's actually the tube that you're looking through, and all the light um, from your objective lens is being transmitted down through the erector tube to your eye. And there's a lot of companies out there that actually use the same size erector tube, whether it's in a one-inch body or a 30-millimeter body. So there's actually no difference at all in your field of view and light transmission. You know, they just get by with it to make the scope a little bit stronger, you know, making it the thicker outer wall. And 30-millimeter tubes are more popular with the tactical crowd. And, you know, all of the, you know, anybody who wants to be a cool guy has to have a 30-millimeter tube according to all the latest gun magazines and Internet forums. So they'll just, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll beef up the strength of the outer tube we're not changing anything internally, so you don't get any of the benefits. But if you pay for a quality scope and that it's going to cost you more, you know, the higher-end companies will make 
a proper 30 millimeter scope with a enlarged erector tube, so you will get a greater field of view and more light transmission, and typically more adjustment out of your scope as well. Um, just be aware that if you you might not get any performance over a traditional one inch tube. But between the two, right. it does come down to personal preference. Um, I went to one sniper course in particular where I actually had a one inch tube scope. The rest of the class had a 30 millimeter scope. And the instructor flat out said on day one, he was worried that I wouldn't have enough adjustment to be able to get out to, um, in that course he shot to 1,000 yards. And to be able to have the adjustment, a lot of stuff factors play into it as well as your mount, you know, bore height, stuff like that. And I actually was able to get data out to 1,100 yards before I ran out of the um, adjustment. Well, there was students in the class with 30 millimeter tubes that had different mounts. Um, you know, barrels were screwed into receivers slightly different, whatever the reason was, and they ran out of adjustment at 700. So, but typically, I, I see a lot of people say that you know, if you want to shoot long range, you need the 30 millimeter tube, and that's not true. It's it's the combination of factors uh, that take into account your scope height, the base rings, you know, right down to how well your barrel is, you know, the angle, if it's really squared into the receiver or not, you know, or if it's canned. All of these play a part. Okay. So that, that would be tube diameter. Um, then when it comes to objective lens diameter, and that's, you know, that's the big old fat end of your rifle scope, a bigger lens doesn't mean a greater field of view. What it equates to is greater light transmission. And the wider the lens is, the more light it can gather and transmit through the scope to your eye. And for the vast majority of shooters, that doesn't make any difference at all. For the shooters that it does make a difference for, that would be a lot of your hunters um, or shooters that spend a lot of late evens on a range because with more light transmitted through the scope, that's going to be just a couple more minutes you know, at the beginning and end of each day that you'll still be able to clearly see through your scope before it gets too dark. Scopes, the lower light transmission, it's just you're not going to be able to see through them, you know, as early or as late as a scope with a larger objective lens. So it comes down to your needs. Um, I'd say it's probably the most common and uh, a great all-around size would be a 40-millimeter objective lens. Um, you know, but they get all the way up to, you know, 50-plus millimeters and as small as 20 millimeters. You know, it comes down to what you're going to use it for. What What is your What are you personally using right now? Uh, all of my scopes on my precision rifles are all Leopold scopes, and uh, one of the four and a half to 14 power. I've got a three to nine. Um, that's on my two what I consider my work rifles at the moment. And one thing I haven't touched on with the scopes yet is reticle. And what you don't need is you don't need a mill-based reticle, you know, and be some sort of armchair sniper. Um, you know, the rest, unless you know how to use it or actively seek out the knowledge to learn how to use it, I know a ton of people that go out and they buy a mill dot scope so they can say that they own a mill dot scope, but they have no idea how to use it. 
you know, and that just completely defeats the purpose. Uh, but like something like a mill-based reticle is fantastic as a range estimation tool and also as a tool to use for hold-off, you know, whether it's hold-overs or hold-unders, uh, depending on distance, without having to make adjustments to your scope. You know, I consider it a very important tool, but not a necessary tool for precision rifle shooting. But what I would say is if you do have any sort of reticle with that type of feature, uh, mill dots, or like the newer TMR, the tactical milling reticles, or like even what they call the MOA reticles, where the hash marks, instead of being in mills, are actually in minutes of angle now, a big thing that I would strongly emphasize is that whatever, you, if you get one of those reticles, that you get one that has adjustments in the same increments, meaning that if you buy a mill-based reticle, that your scope actually adjusts in mills. Um, and that's becoming much more popular. Uh, one of my precision rifles has exactly that set up, a mill-based reticle with mill adjustments. Um, and then the other one has what's more traditional, and that's where it has a mill-based reticle, but with minute of angle adjustments. And that's fine. That's what I, you know, for lack of a better word, grew up on. But it requires an extra step in converting. You know, I have to remember that there's approximately three and a half minutes per mil. So it's like if I shoot and I see the dirt kick up in my scope and I'm one mil off, I've got to convert it to minutes of angle to make the adjustment on my scope. Um, whereas my mil-mil scope, if I shoot, and it's the, you know, I see the dirt kick up, but I'm two mils left. Well, there's no more conversion. I, that's exactly my adjustment. I hit two mils left, I'm going to come two mils right. You know, and it just simplifies the process. And for that reason, a lot of companies now started making, um, you know, we call it MOA, uh, minute of angle, minute of angle, minute of angle scopes, where the reticle will be graduated minutes of angle to match the adjustments. So... You know, this is a long way of saying that if you are going to get a reticle that has that type of feature for hold-off, hold-unders, or for range-finding, I would strongly recommend that you get the adjustments to match. You know, it makes life a lot easier. It's one less step in converting. Right, right. And listen, uh, I, personally, I thought that uh, when I took the class, uh, the first class, uh, and we spent uh, the morning working on uh, on understanding how to use your mill dot scope in either uh, in you know either mills or a minute angle learning how to use that and then spending the rest of the day in practical application that's uh, uh, you know getting uh, we went to the uh, to the range and then we had a few minutes to uh, take actual measurements of the of a vehicle and find out what uh, different things were like they License plates, tires, windows, doors, things like that. Get measurements of them, and then uh, have the vehicle placed uh, out at at ranges up to 600 uh, meters away, and as close as uh, I think close to 75 or 100. <clears throat> and uh, you ran everybody through. I believe that was the uh, the same drill under the same standards as the. Uh, as the military sniper school, right? Yes, and that was a straight by the book trail, and we do that on day three of the Battle Road Precision Rifle Course. The day begins with a class on range estimation, and after that, 
all the students will line up. They'll measure, you said, the vehicle um, or a person or silhouette target attached to the vehicle. And that vehicle will be placed at, you know, we drove back and forth to 10 random spots. And the students will have to first guesstimate the distance with their eye, record that through their scope, and determine the size of the target in mills, do the formula, you know, or minutes of angle, depending on what type of system they have, and record the distance um, that they got with the scope. And for grading purposes, we allow a 15% error for eye estimation, but only a 5% error for scope estimation. So we go through and said it's the standards are straight U.S. Army sniper school, and it just gives the students an idea of, you know, how well their range finding capability is, and how how familiar they are with their system. And it's just something you constantly have to practice. It's a perishable skill, but it's an incredibly important skill because you know, if you get that down, you don't need to rely on the range finder um, and so on. It's and terrain can be incredibly tricky to try to range estimate over. And, you know, most Americans, you know, sadly, absolutely are horrendous at range estimation. And you know, to learn how to do it properly, it takes time. It's a good skill, but it's a beneficial skill, and it's going to save you money down the road. It's less rounds you're going to expend on the range trying to get on target. You know, and incredibly important for military, law enforcement, or, you know, even hunters on the civilian side to make that first shot count. Right. And uh, I thought that that was, personally for me, that was one of the best parts of class because we did the, uh, we learned, we had a really solid, uh, rock-solid class in how to use your uh, uh the increments in order to determine distance and then put it to practical use on the uh, uh, on the range at different distances. Uh, and then uh, right after that, went over to the uh, actual distance range and then fired a course saw at unknown distance on the targets and stuff. I thought that was one of the best parts of the class. Well, listen, when... When people think about uh, let's let's talk about ballistics for for a moment because when people think about uh, the actual uh, the, the physical manifestation of a rifle firing uh, for most people they they see it as uh, uh, squeezing the trigger uh, the round fires and then it travels in a straight line to the target like a laser beam. And the whole time it's uh, traveling, the bullet itself, if you were to look at it with a close-up, you'd see it traveling in just a straight arrow line itself, straight to the target. But, but pretty much everyone knows that that's not, that's not exactly what happens. Uh, it's also, it actually uh, goes through a, a fairly, uh, fairly kind of complicated process from uh, the ignition to the point of impact. Can you talk to folks about uh, about the phases that go through and what is actually happening? Oh, certainly. And, 
you know, most people that think that it's got that laser beam trajectory, you know, are the people that just sit at the bench and shoot just 100 yards every single time, you know, they go to the club, and that's all they're comfortable doing, you know. You know, and it's those are the people that get that, you know, image because they sight the rifle for one distance and it doesn't ever get used outside of that distance. But uh, it's certainly not a laser beam, you know, and a lot of other people tend to think that it shoots like a rainbow because that's when they buy the box of ammo and look at the chart on the side, they just see this nice arc. And they think it's a rainbow and, you know, the bullet will rise and come back down on its own. And all of that defies physics, both the laser beam and the bullet rising on its own. The bullet goes through, it was affected by several forces. And within ballistics, we have three types of ballistics. That's internal, external, and terminal. There's actually a fourth, like, sub-type also called transitional. But uh, for the three main phases, internal, external, and terminal, internal deals with everything that happens to your bullet from the time the primer is struck, you know, on the cartridge inside the rifle, as it travels down the barrel and right to the point that it exits the muzzle, that's the crown of the barrel. Everything that's happening inside, and there's a lot happening, is interstitial. And then what most people are vaguely aware of is external ballistics. And external ballistics is everything that happens to your bullet from the time that it exits the muzzle to the time that it comes in contact with an object. You know, hopefully it's your desired target, whether it's your paper target downrange or, you know, that nice white tail buck broadside, um, you know, or it could be a unintended object such as, you know, a tree branch that got in the way or something. But everything that happens to that bullet while it's in air is external. And then we have terminal. And terminal is everything, all the influences on the bullet, everything that happens to it from the time it strikes something to the time it comes at rest, comes to rest. Um, and where we need the most emphasis on, you know, the knowledge-wise is the external. Because bullets are all impacted by forces. And we have to understand all of those forces and what the bullet's going through to be able to accurately predict, make our adjustments to hit our targets at long range. And there's there's several factors, and the, the biggest one right off the bat has the greatest effect on our bullet in flight is gravity. Um, the moment that that bullet leaves the muzzle of our barrel, it is immediately being pulled to the ground by gravity. And we have to learn to compensate for that. And we compensate for that by angling the barrel upwards. And that's how we actually make our, um, our trajectory, you know, make the bullet rise. The bullet's not doing that on its own. We're actually compensating for gravity by angling our barrel upwards, and that gives the impression that our bullet's rising. Um, so but that's how we defeat gravity. And outside of gravity, there's a whole host of factors um, from wind, temperature, altitude, um, angle, um, you know, it's right down to, depending on what kind of distance we're talking about, you know, Coriolis effect, you know, for extreme long range, uh, to spin drift, you know, and that's the effect that the rifling in our barrel has on the bullet in flight. You know, and then for some very advanced and special topics, you know, we've got the three phases of trajectory, and that's talking about the bullet going through mutation, sleep, and precession. 
Um, you know, and you need to know that stuff if you plan on shooting through barriers, uh, which is a special applications process primarily for law enforcement and military. But there's a lot of factors that you have to take into account. Um, you know, the greatest of them be gravity and wind. Um, but outside of that, there's a lot of environmental factors. Okay. Uh, that's the that are the that's the phases that it goes through. But uh, <clears throat> what are the other things that uh, what are the things that are going to be affecting the bullet in flight uh, as it's going through it? I mean, you're having to consider uh, the way that the the bullet runs, but there's also uh, a large number of forces uh, that actually work on the on the bullet in flight. Now, if you watch any movies like, uh, oh, I don't know, I was watching one the other day uh, with uh, uh, what's his name, the, the new action hero guy. Uh, anyway, he was oh, oh Wahlberg. That's it, and he was listing out the whole length of uh, of things that affect the bullet in flight. But uh, including the uh, rotation of the Earth. But uh, can you mm -hmm. explain to uh, to folks the the other factors that you're having to add in to the ballistics? Right. The um, okay. So we defeat gravity or compensate for gravity by angling our barrel upwards. And how much we angle it upwards depends on distance, depends on velocity, it depends on the ballistic coefficient of our bullet. Um, for wind. And that's our second biggest factor that's affecting our bullet in flight. We have to compensate for it. We need to know two things, and that is wind speed and wind direction. And we need to know is the wind blowing, um, you know, we typically use a clock direction, is it blowing from 3 to 9 or 9 to 3, meaning straight across, a you 90-degree know, wind to our bullet? Um, is it a 45-degree angle? Is it you know, a diagonal wind? Um, you know, and that's a wind that's going to be blowing from, say, 2 to 7 or, um, you know, 1 to 8, just for examples. Or is the wind blowing straight in my face, straight from behind? You know, once we have the direction, we need to know how, how many miles per hour. And with that, you know, there's several formulas that we can use. Uh, there's a lot of ballistics charts out there that tell us our drift. Um, and it all depends on each individual rifle and the loaded shooting, uh, the velocity. That's why it's also very important that once you select a rifle and select an ammo combination that shoots well in it, that you chronograph the load. You know, that way you know exactly what your velocity is and you can actually build a detailed chart off that. But with that data, you know, you calculate, you know, wind speed, the direction, you know, use your, whatever your go-to formula is. And kind of a hasty formula that I like to use is I call it the 110-100 rule. And that's adjusting one minute of angle per 10 miles per hour of wind per 100 yards. So, and that's for what I call a full value wind. That's that straight 90 degree blowing across the range wind. And with that formula there, I've used that effectively to engage, um, you know, your typical man-sized silhouette targets out to seven, eight hundred meters uh, without issue. Like uh, it's just using that formula. It's a quick, you know, hasty formula. One minute of angle per ten miles per hour of wind 
per 100 yards or meters. And once you figure out the wind speed to that, and say, say we're dealing with a 10-mile-per-hour wind at 300 yards, well, my adjustment would be three minutes of angle, one minute per 10 miles per hour per 100 yards. So the three minutes of angle at 300 and the direction is you always adjust into the wind. So if the wind is blowing from right to left, I would adjust three minutes of angle right into the wind, the direction it's coming from. And that's how I compensate for wind. Outside of wind and gravity, there's a whole host of factors such as temperature. As temperature increases, the strike of our bullet tends to be higher. So we actually need to adjust our sights down. And this is from a baseline of when we zeroed our rifle. It's very important to remember and record the temperature um, of when you zeroed your rifle. So if you go to the range and it's 60 degrees out, and you get that good 100-yard zero, and then you come down for Battle Road Precision Rifle Course where the average temperature throughout the course is predicted to be close to 100 degrees, we're talking a 40-degree change. Well, how does that affect our bullet? Well, hotter air tends to be less dense. So we end up with typically some higher velocities if we're able to maintain the velocity uh, for a longer period, and that results in higher strikes. So as a general rule, for a 20-degree change in temperature, we do a one-minute of angle change in elevation. So as temperature goes up, I adjust my sights down. As temperature decreases, I adjust my sights up because colder air is more dense than warm air. So that's how I'd calculate and compensate for temperature. Um, you know, then we have um, altitude, our elevation above sea level. You know, shooting at you know Battle Road where you know the elevation is I'm trying to remember roughly like 600 feet elevation. It's going to be you know, it's darn near sea level. It's going to be very different than if I take that same rifle and zero it here, then go on an elk hunt up in Colorado, and I'm at 10,000 feet. The air at higher elevations is thinner, and that equates to less resistance on our bullet. Being in the bullet, once again, like hotter temperatures, will strike higher. Less resistance, less air density, is also higher strikes. So how do we compensate for this? For approximately every 5,000 feet change in elevation, it's a one minute of angle change in the strike of your bullet. So if I go up in elevation, I'm going to adjust my sights down to keep it on target. Um, you know, and vice versa, if I were to zero my rifle at 5,000 feet in Colorado and come to Battle Road, I'd want to adjust my sights up a minute because I'm coming into more dense air and that's how I'm able to compensate for those factors. Um, yeah, then there's, we talk about during the course precipitation, the effect that that has, because uh, there's a lot of myths dealing with precipitation. Um, humidity is another factor that um, a lot of people tend to think that the higher humidity, that that makes the air more dense, and that's going to make our, you know, create more resistance for our bullet in flight. And it's actually not the case. Uh, humidity has a very negligible effect on our bullet in flight. Uh, typically, if you're dealing with more than 
if you're not dealing with at least a 70% change in humidity, we're shooting, you know, very long ranges, you know, past 700, 800 yards, you don't have to compensate for humidity at all. Um, if, if you do compensate for humidity, you know, for minor changes and closing targets, you're probably actually doing yourself an injustice and, a, you know, creating this um, because it's actually a very negligible effect. Um, and then we have spin drift, and that's our bullet. Most American rifles have a right-hand twist, and that means our bullets can X the muzzle, spin into the right in a clockwise motion. Well, this basic physics tells us that that spinning is going to cause it over time to drift to the right. So we actually have to make an adjustment back to the left, but only at extreme long range. Um, well, not extreme. But typically, you're not going to see the effects of spin drift until past 600 yards. And at that point, it's still just a, a small effect. Between 6800, you know, you'll do a half minute to the left. From 800 to 1,000, you do a full minute left. You know, and that's how we're able to compensate for that factor. Um, and then we have shooting uphill and downhill. And we cover that extensively in the course um, through discussion. You know, there's a lot of myths with that as well. You know, people think that shooting uphill has one effect on the bullet, while shooting downhill has a an opposite effect. And you know, I address all of those during the course. Right, and uh, and it sounds uh, when you lay it all out in the line like that right now, and people are just listening to it, they're not saying anything, and they're not. Uh, uh, they're not there in the moment. It uh, it sounds a bit daunting and uh, and it sounds like a lot to grasp and handle. But listen, it's not. Uh, if you uh, you can get the hang of it, you can start to understand it uh, during practical exercise with your with your rifle and your optics and uh, and understanding what your target is telling you. <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the, the course begins with a discussion of ballistics and rifle and setup and stuff like that. And then uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention while we're still in the, the front end part of it here is that uh, a lot of the people who've attended the course so far, and, uh, and myself included, is uh, we're all uh, alumni of the Appleseed Project, which is a fantastic project for uh, learning the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship. And there's really not a better place to get the information than uh, going to the Appleseed Project, unless you come to one of the Battle Road Ghost of Goliath courses starting in September. Uh, that's also a good place. But one of the things that uh, the Appleseed Project teaches folks is in the shooting positions, especially in prone, that you have to uh, that you're going to have to cant to the strong side of your rifle when you're in the prone position. And uh, one of the things that uh, you were teaching in your class is that you do not you line up directly behind the rifle. And uh, it was hard for me to accept that at first, but I'll tell you. Uh, the the things that Apsley teaches are good, but it's it's a good 
general starting point. But it's not the only way, and it's not uh, uh, written in some gospel. The uh, the stuff that I learned from you, John, especially uh, you know lining up directly behind the rifle, uh, worked extremely well. So can you talk about uh, about shooting positions? Uh, for just a minute, practical shooting positions uh, for precision rifle? Right, yeah, certainly. And what you're alluding to is like apple seed or a lot of just basic marksmanship programs, they teach using the sling as support. And I'm a very, very big fan of using the sling for shooting support. But to maximize using the sling, it typically um, you're going to need to be in a, a slightly canned position a lot of times you'll draw up your fire inside leg, um, and you're not straight behind the rifle. And, you know, that's all so you can get the most use out of the swing. Well, it's a different, you know, it's a different animal when using a precision rifle and you're shooting off of a rest, such as a bipod, you know, or a rucksack or a sandbag or whatever. Um, you want to lay generally as straight behind the rifle as possible, and that's for good recoil management. Uh, that way, shot to shot, you've got as much mass behind the rifle as possible to keep it in place, absorb the recoil, and it helps with your natural point of aim. Um, so yeah, that's a big learning curve for a lot of people that are just used to getting down in your traditional prone, you know, slightly angled at the target, you know, your fire inside, and, you know, then switching over to shooting off a bipod. They still want to can't. And what that's doing is that's given, without putting all that mass behind the rifle, it creates an outlet for the rifle to move to. And right. it creates, it's more movement, it's more bounce, and it's going to be hard to repeatable, be repeatable on target and you know, be able to stand target shot to shot. Uh, you're going to have more bounce. You're going to lose the target and the scope more than likely. Um, so you've got to get more behind it. No, that's one of the biggest differences. And then, right, big fan of, for your support hand, your non-firing hand, using that to support the rear of the stock as opposed to, you know, because we're shooting off of a rest, I don't need that hand out holding up my forearm anymore of the stock. Uh, and now what I want to do is I want to bring that to the back and make a fist and place that under the rear of the rifle or use a, what's called a sand sock to rest the rifle on, and I'll squeeze the sand sock with my non-firing hand, and I'll do that so i got a, a nice rest at the rear of the rifle as well as the front, and just by tightening my fist, I will raise the butt of the rifle, which actually lowers my point of aim, or I can loosen my fist or grip on the sand sock, and it helps the butt end to settle, which raises my point of aim. But that's, you know, that's another thing that's different from, you know, your traditional sling-supported field positions, uh, such as apple right. And if you're directly like behind the rifle, it also lengthens your, uh, your strong arm in order to manipulate the bolt. If you're canted, it kind of shortens that arm. And mm -hmm. uh, if you're using a bolt rifle, you know, it makes it a little bit harder to manipulate that bolt and put it at an awkward angle. If you line up directly behind it, then you have that, uh, you're able to support yourself with the, uh, with the offhand, like you said, uh, underneath the stock of the rifle. That will also support your upper body weight when you release uh, the strong hand 
in order to manipulate the bolt, and you have a longer arm reach then in order to manipulate the bolts uh, more easily by lining up directly behind mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so that's some, of the, that's some of the main differences. There's other smaller differences uh, that come with the shooting, you know, and then kind of what type of rest you're using as well um, comes into play in zeroing your rifle and switching positions. The if you zero off of a bipod, um, that's going to affect the dynamics of your rifle a certain way. And if all of a sudden you don't use the bipod, you take that off and you shoot off of a rucksack, that changes the vibration on the rifle from shot to shot. And typically you'll see a, a higher impact. So it's like if you zero off a bipod, you kind of always want to use a bipod. You know, if you zero off a rucksack, you kind of always want to use a rucksack. But if you constantly change back and forth, and that's going to affect the elevation of your um, round impact. Yeah, so it's all right. And that's one of, one of the things that we learned in uh, uh, early on, I learned almost 10 years ago in one of the boot camps, is that, uh, is that your zero is going to change with, with your different positions. You know, if you're going to, when you shoot off a tree, you have to expect that your zero is going to be uh, – a little bit different than your bipod zero or your bench rift zero. They're all, they're all going to be affected by your position. Mm-hmm. Uh, now let's talk about, uh, uh, well, did you have something that you wanted to cover? Uh, I also wanted to, to oh, I wanted to slide something. If you do, go ahead. No, that that covers uh, a good majority of the topic. Well, I also wanted to cover that, uh, uh, you know, we were talking, uh, you and I have talked uh, quite a few times about, uh, uh, like, typical engagement distances. And I know from speaking to you that you've had quite quite a few folks talk to you and tell you or ask you, what's a typical uh, distance for engagement? With uh, with a sniper, and uh, and go ahead and tell folks your answer because it was kind of a surprise to me too. Uh, in my experience, there is no typical engagement distance. Um, you know, in my experience, after serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, my closest engagement was about 15 meters. Uh, my furthest engagement, um, you know, I was engaged as far as 1,500 meters. Uh, with small arms. You know, I've engaged out to a little over 1,100 meters myself. And every, you know, every distance in between, you know, I can't think of a single distance that I shot more than another. You know, so it was close to 15 and as far as 1,500. And everything right. in between. And because you know, of that, but, you've added in a, a section of the course that we, uh, that we ran, I think, on the last day, right? That, uh, which was the close end drills. Tell folks about the about how the close end drill works because I really like this because your philosophy was if you uh, you know a lot of people think that if you're if you're close in and you've got uh, your bolt action rifle or something then you need to you need to drop that into the sling and, and grab your uh, and transition to a pistol or something like that. But uh, uh, but of course you're saying you don't want you've got You've got a highly accurate rifle right there in your hand with a round in the chamber. Why would you try to transition? And uh, tell folks about the drill that uh, that you run. Right. And on the last day, we do a close quarter marksmanship drill. And 
for a lot of precision rifle shooters, uh, you know, tactical shooters, whatever, you know, they, they think that, you know, I, I buy this bull barrel bolt action and this is my 800-yard gun, you know, and that's all it's good for is the long range, you know, and it's so if I get presented with something close in, I'm going to transition to my pistol or my AR-15, you know, and it's just, that's not real world. Uh, real world, we don't always get that option. Um, sometimes, especially for a lot of law enforcement in particular, um, you know, dealing with an urban area or whatever, or a lot of hunters, you see the buck way out in the field and you're trying to put your, your move on them, you're trying to get a little bit closer, and all of a sudden you jump, you know, another deer that's, you know, 20 yards away that you jumped out of the bed or whatever. All the time in real-life situations, we get presented with these close-in scenarios. And to be able to transition to another firearm, that takes more time, that's seconds. You know, why am I going to transition to, say, a 9mm on my hip when I'm holding a 308 in my hand? Which one's going to put better energy on target to begin with? Well, the 308 that's already in my hand. You know, the downside is if it's a bolt action, I might only have one shot. But I want you I make sure the students understand how their rifle is going to perform and practice engaging target at the close-in uh, distances. So, you know, it starts to build, you know, just the slightest bit of muscle memory you know, give them an idea of where to start with. And what I do is we'll start at a, uh, we start at 100 yards, and I will have all the students basically assume a low ready or high ready position holding the rifle. And then on my command of threat, the students will quickly bring the rifle up. They'll fire two shots, center mass of a silhouette target, and then I'll have them drop down prone and actually fire a precision shot from prone um, into the head. And uh, this is all done in, I believe, 15 seconds or less um, per command. You know, fire three shots, uh, two to the chest standing, and then drop down prone, one to the head of the silhouette target. And after that, the students are told to advance, and they walk towards the targets. And from, I'm sorry, I don't start this at 100, I start this at 50. And from 50 and in, uh, typically they'll be given, you know, several commands of threat in which they've got to repeat the same thing. Two shots, quickly, standing, um, you know, then drop down prone, give me the one head shot. You know, and I run this in typically as close as, you know, five meters. And what students get to see by the target, though, is they get to see how, our scope height, our distance over the bore, you know, and how whatever zero we have on the rifle um, affects close range because out to, if you have a 100-yard zero, until we get to 100 yards, our bullet strikes below our point of aim. You know, past 100 yards, it's going to strike above it. Um, so at the close in distances, if I'm going for a precision shot, in particular the head shot, um, I need to understand that, you know, I'm not taking the time to make a scope adjustment. I've got to know where that bullet's going to impact. You know, and with a 100-yard zero at everything less than 100 yards, it's going to impact low. And how much depends on, you know, several factors to include the height of the scope over my bore. You know, and that can vary person to person. That can be as extreme as, you know, two and a half, three and a half inches. You know, it might only be an inch, inch and a half. Uh, but it's all factors that we take into account. Yeah, you got yeah, it. I thought that was, 
I thought that was a great drill. Now, for us, I think you had, I think we did do it a little bit different. We did start at a hundred, and uh, and then it was uh, it was you know roughly twenty twenty five meters, and uh, and you know it wasn't uh, we didn't stop and get set up or anything. You you called it out as a uh, uh, you know as a I mean we knew it was going to happen, but you called it out as kind of an unexpected point. Mm-hmm. You would start talking to the folks about something else, and then uh, and then call out uh, to make the shot. And uh, I think you had to take one shot standing to the uh, center mass to the chest, one shot kneeling, and then yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Prone, yeah. one shot uh, prone to the bridge of the nose. Yep, yep. That, that, and uh, that is how the drill is run. One shot standing, you drop down to one shot kneeling, and then you do one shot uh, prone, and you know that's got to be the head shot, your precision shot. You know, and it's we're yeah. able to practice all of those, you know, hard positions that nobody ever wants to uh, go out and shoot because, you know, it makes us look bad because we don't end up in those little tiny groups. You know, and if I'm holding that $1,000 precision rifle, you know, I only want to see little tiny groups on the target. It's just like, no, I want you to be able to effectively put rounds on a realistically sized target in a very short amount of time from field positions when you're not when you're least going to expect it. You know, I throw in a lot of verbal distractions, um, you know, and I change up the pace, uh, the distances that you're shooting from, you know. The first couple shots might seem that it's every 25 meters, and after that, it might be a little shorter, it might be a little longer. But uh, you got to be ready to shoot on command when the job presents itself, not necessarily when you're always ready, because uh, that's, that's just not real world. You know, a lot of law enforcement officers, you know, going around the house, you know, going down an alley, you know, in the mindset that they're just going to go get set up in a position, all of a sudden get confronted with a fleeing suspect, um, you know, that's, you know, armed and wanting to do, you know, as an ill intent towards them. You know, they got to be prepared, you know, do I drop the rifle, you know, and transition to the, the duty pistol? Or do I use what's in my hands right now, and that's going to have better effects on target to begin with? You know, we just have to practice that if we're going to do that. And most people, you don't see a lot of people taking their bull barrel rim 700 and shooting 25 meters with it. Right. Right. And and having the ability to do that uh, is going to be awfully important, as you said. If you're... Uh, <laughs> If you're even if you're just a hunter, as you said, uh, you know, and you uh, you cause that uh, that buck to break 20 meters from you, uh, a understanding where your round is going to strike in that close range is very important. You know, a three inch miss mm-hmm. one way or the other uh, is the difference between it dropping right there and it uh, you know doing another 150, 200, or 500 yards. If you're mm-hmm. uh, law enforcement or military. Same thing, except that uh, except that the buck might have a uh, you know a 12 gauge that it's ready to bust back on you with, and you need to make sure that your uh, initial round uh, causes enough damage to uh, eliminate the threat. And it's right there in your hands; it's ready to go, uh, and you should understand how to use it at close distance. And uh, like I said, I thought that was a I thought it was a really great drill. And uh, things, the drill is is run at pretty good at a pretty high speed. Uh, there's a lot of chatter, and uh, and it, 
I thought it was actually a, a really great drill. Now, one of the other things that uh, that we did was uh, we collected our cold bore data every day. And why is that important? Well, the most important shot that you're going to take out of your rifle is traditionally known as your cold bore shot. And that's the first shot of the day when the barrel's not warmed up. And it's, here's where it's kind of a little bit of, uh, you know, this is all theory, uh, but kind of a myth as well, is that we're finding that, you know, people think that the barrel shoots differently between being cold and being hot. Well, what we're tending to find is it's actually not a, a cold-hot difference. It's a, it's a clean, dirty um, difference. And it's, you know, a lot of people that really care about the rifle, you know, at the end of a long day at the range, they want to go back. They want to clean all that carbon and all that copper out of the barrel. Yep. Um, yep. That is seasoned the bore. You know, and then they basically start from scratch the next day with this clean barrel. Well, for those first couple shots out of the barrel, uh, out of a clean bore, especially that very first one, it tends to go a different spot. You know, it's going to have some sort of deviation. And if it's out of a really clean barrel, typically a not a very predictable deviation from your actual zero. Um, so every single day, we start off um, the day with shooting the cold bore data, taking our time, uh, taking a very precise shot, see where that first shot of the day impacts so we can see if there's a pattern, and if so, we'll have a pattern to be able to adjust for, uh, depending on the conditions over time. First shot as perfect as possible, because in particular for a sniper, whether it's military or law enforcement, or for a hunter, um, yeah, especially a hunter that... You don't that, get to walk that round in. Yeah, you don't get to no. warm that barrel up before you, before you shoot. No, no, you certainly don't. You know, most time you're going to get one opportunity one shot and you've got to make that count. So if that first shot out of your rifle tends to go somewhere different, you know, than it does on shot four or five when you're at the range of zero in it and sighting it in, you need to know what that difference is. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on collecting your cold board data throughout the course. Set in, you know, typically what students end up finding is it's not a cold hot, it's a dirty clean. And, you know, I actually recommend you know, only cleaning your rifle, you know, thoroughly every couple hundred rounds. It actually puts your rifle away at the end of the day, you know, a little dirty from, the, you know, day, day shooting. So you don't have to start back at scratch, you know, and for, you know, I call it seasoning the bore, you know, re-season it the next day. You know, it's already good right. to go. And I found that the rifles are much, much more consistent in doing so. Okay, so, so you you're... Your cleaning, uh, uh, your maintenance drill, then, when you get through uh, at the end of the day at the range, uh, how do you go about uh, getting your rifle good to go? Okay. If it's just a normal day on the range and I'm not going to go through and do a thorough cleaning, you know, I've only got a few rounds through it, at the end of the day, it's going to get a bore snake, a dry bore snake pulled through it. And at the start of the next day, I'll do the same thing. Just if anything had loosened up overnight, you know, or some bug decided it wanted to make its home in my barrel overnight, I just pull the bore snake through. And once again, a dry bore snake, no oil, no solvent on it. I pour that through at the beginning and end of each day. And, you know, for when it comes to cleaning, that's all the barrel gets, you know, for my personal rifles until they've got a few hundred rounds through them. 
you know, and then I'll go through. I'll I'll give them a good thorough cleaning, use my copper solvents, remove all the copper, remove all the carbons. Um, but that only happens every you know couple hundred rounds. It certainly doesn't happen after just one day at the range. Right. Right, and that's uh, that's something that uh, you know that I'd heard uh, uh, several times uh, previously across the years. And uh, matter of fact, one time I was shooting uh, uh, in a competition up uh, in the Northeast, and uh, the night before, I had really done a, a excellent excellent cleaning job on the rifle. And uh, cleaned everything, stripped everything out, all the copper, the uh, the carbon, everything. <clears throat> Got online and started shooting and couldn't understand why the rounds weren't going where uh, I expect. And uh, and when I mentioned it uh, to the guy beside me, and he, of course, he was a very seasoned competitive shooter, he said, uh, did you clean your rifle last night? I said, yeah, of course I did. You know, I stripped it out and cleaned it and everything else. He goes, was it shooting okay before you cleaned it? I go, yeah. He goes, then, then why did you do that? And I said, I, mm-hmm. because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. He goes, if it's shooting what? good, don't mess with it. And yeah. Uh, yeah. so that's, I've taken that to heart. I mean, I clean out, I clean out any grit, grease, uh, make sure there's, that everything is uh, nice and clean, kitchen table clean. I uh, lube uh, the lube points. Uh, but I put the boar snake through the barrel, and after that, I don't mess with it. Yeah, yeah. I make sure the action's clean. Um, you know, all those moving parts. You know, they they stay clean and free of debris. But uh, that right. barrel, you know, until I start seeing a decline in accuracy, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to thoroughly clean it at all. It's going to see that dry boar snake, and it's like you talked about, a good competition sh- uh, shooting buddy that I have. Uh, you know, he calls it cleaning the X's out of it. You know, it's he never shows up at a match with a, a clean barrel because uh, just so it's it's costing him points. You know, you clean the X's right out of it. He likes to say. Right. Yeah, one of the things that Ash uh, uh, mentions in the chat room is that a close drill isn't something you can do at most rifle ranges, and that's true you know, because they don't want you. Most rifle ranges, they don't want you moving around. They don't want you uh, leaving the box. Uh, and a lot of them, they don't want you doing. They don't want you picking the rifle up. They want it to be sitting on the bench and shooting. So it's kind of hard uh, to find places to do it, but uh, it's certainly uh, well worth it uh, to find some place and run it. And because it's uh, a close in drill. You don't have to have a lot of distance to do it. You only need 100 yards, 100 meters to do it. But uh, it's certainly uh, certainly worth finding some place that will allow you to get out of the box. And of course, I'll toot our own horn at that our own uh, horn at that point. At Battle Road, we don't put you in the box. Uh, all of our shooting is done as realistically as possible. All of our when we're doing pistol classes, all of our evolutions start with. Uh, Drawing from concealed, uh, you're going to move a lot during our pistol courses. You're going to move around. You're going to uh, move in different directions. You're going to have your back to the target, your sides to the target. Uh, uh, same thing with the carbine courses and uh, uh, and the precision rifle courses. Uh, a lot of the folks that came to uh, when uh, when John ran a carbine course here just recently, 
I think he crippled a couple of folks with uh, with his uh, with his drills. And uh, folks were uh, were doing a lot of movement and a lot of shooting. So that's one of the reasons. Uh, if you think about, like, why would I, why would I drive uh, 100 miles to to go to that specific range when I got a range next to me? And that's that would be one of the answers. Is that uh, we're not going to put you in the box here? You're going to move around. You're going to shoot in as real a situations uh, as we can afford to uh, to put you in. Uh, the the course ends with uh, well before we go to the end let's let's jump back just a little bit because one of the things I also like that you did is uh, is uh, I think what was on day four uh, is devoted uh, a good part of the day is devoted to a what what you call a stress test uh, tell folks uh, how that runs well day four is um, right after. That's our second day of shooting, unknown distance shooting. Uh, the first two days is all known distance. Day three is when we do the range estimation uh, exercise and then start engaging unknown distance targets, which at that point we switch to shooting steel primarily. Um, on day four, I start throwing in some stress tests, and that, this involves getting your heart rate up. Uh, you're going to be running, you know, anywhere from 25 to, you know, 100 meters at a time going station to station and happen to engage targets of varying size at varying distances um, for time and from many, many alternate positions, you know, which you will have practiced over the previous three days. Uh, so everything is a crawl, walk, run methodology, and you, you build up to this. But, you know, come day four, you know, there's a little physical fitness involved, you know, and it's, you know, you're pretty much, you know, I have a time standard, but in the end, you're only shooting against yourself. Um, you know, and it's it's simulating real-world conditions. You know, at, whether you're a hunter, you know, like you said, you've spooked that, uh, that buck out of its bedding spot, you know, and you've got to run to get an opening, you know, to uh, get a shot at him or whatever or you have to drop down into an alternate position, you don't got time to deploy your bipod or find a nice solid rest. Um, you know, your heart rate's, you know, it's picked up. You know, and it's the same thing if you're at your house. You know, and you hear something go bump in the night, and you got to go investigate. You know, it's, your heart rate's going to be elevated. So I make you practice that. You're going to shoot with your heart rate elevated. And, you know, you get to see that effect. You know, and through training like that, it's going to help you overcome that and be better prepared for it when it happens in a real life scenario and not just on the range. Right. So we use the, you know, we use battle roads, 250 yard um, speed wall, which has various positions shooting from different cover. Um, you know, and you're going to shoot the rifle, you know, from multitude of multitude of positions, just at that one station. And I think it's got eight different points or so or 10 different points. Yeah, we got there's there's nine nine shooting positions in a, on a uh, 45 foot span, mm -hmm. and uh, we use that extensively on that day. You know, and then you know, typically you're running up to that position, so it's you got a probably 200 meters or more, 300 meters of movement to go to even get to that with stations in between. You know, and once again, at each every station, you have to identify a target that is. Um, 
already been determined for you that you have to identify, range estimate, and engage all under time, you know, from whatever position, you know, that I dictate. And, you know, it gets the heart rate up. It gets the mind thinking. But it's it's bringing together at that point, um, you know, three and a half days of your training, of your practice, you know, to kind of culminate an event. And it, it's, it's a really good realistic exercise, you know, and it will show you how much, you know, your skills have improved over the last few days if you attend the course. Right. It'll make you, uh, it'll make you think uh, while you're doing it. It's not just a physical thing. There's a lot of, of mind, a lot of thought into it. And uh, and if you are the type of person who might uh, who might get excited uh, during this event and forget that you're using your 200 meter holdover data, uh, make sure you bring a lot of ammunition and a flat bottom shovel that uh, that John can use to scrape the brass away from you uh, while you're shooting. Uh, this sounds like a uh, like a real life experience we're talking about here. Yeah, I got I got excited, and I think by when I got to the third position, which is we were shooting the third position or fourth position, was inside a, an old a steel grain bin, and you had to climb inside. And you're shooting out a little trap door in the bottom of it, and uh, and uh, I got excited and completely forgot that I was using my 200 meter. Uh, holdover data to put data on the rifle when I was shooting, and I could not figure out why I was uh, getting misses in a row there. And when I finally realized, uh, you know, after about, I don't know what it was, seven or eight rounds, I think I actually had to fire, that, uh, that before I finally realized what I was doing wrong, and uh, there's no time to beat yourself in the head. You just have to, have to drive on and, and drive through it. But it's a great exercise because... Uh, uh, you know, there's certainly no way, uh, no realistic way for you to simulate uh, excitement or heartbeat of being either on the hunt or being engaged in some type of combat. The only way to, to, to get even to approximate that, of course, is to get your heart rate up high enough through a physical activity uh, in order to simulate that. And, that, and this does that because uh, the people are constantly on the move and uh, and constantly uh, shooting from different positions and, and rapidly going from one position to the next and uh, and shooting at a lot of different steel at a lot of different distances and you know having to very rapidly make a determination uh, using your scope using your mill dot scope or minute of angle scope and uh, measuring that target to figure out how far away it is so you can put the accurate data on as rapidly as possible and then take the shot, and then move on. And and uh, it's, it's a drill I'd love to do every day, but uh, but not at the uh, not at that same rate of fire that I did on that uh, third or fourth position. <laughs> uh, so that uh, that pretty much covers uh, what we ran through at the course. Now we did we ended it with a, a nice little drill, which I also enjoyed, uh, which was the uh, now you said something today. Uh, I don't know what you called it—the uh, the walk uh, back finding back. the honor grad or something. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We do we do the walk back drill, and that's a an offhand competition where it's just uh, it's an elimination event. All the students will get online starting at 
100 yards, and they will engage a steel silhouette target uh, from the standing position. And every student that hits the target moves back an additional 50 yards. Um, if you miss, you get one alibi, one redeeming shot, um, two misses, and you're out. You know, and you start policing up brass. Uh, but everybody else is still in it. We keep going back uh, in 50-yard increments. Everybody's uh, taking a one standing shot, and you know, they're allowed one miss overall for the entire event. Um, but two misses, they're out. And we go back to see how far back we can make it until there's only one student left. And uh, that's how we ended the drill, and it was great. And uh, everybody got a good, uh, we got a good class photo and uh, and certificates. Now, yes, other events that we cover the, uh, are uh, we we also do you know throughout the course. So there's several things that we do, and then we do the low light shoot, um, which is another very important aspect of precision rifle shooting that uh, a lot of people don't ever get an opportunity to practice or train or even know the um, the science behind, because there's a whole science to low-light shooting as well, you know, and things to consider uh, for rifle setup, you know, for shooting in, in low-light situations. We cover that. Uh, we cover canting the rifle. You know, if you have to shoot from a position where you're not able to have the rifle upright, uh, the effect that that has on the relationship between our bore and our sight system. Uh, we covered that. And then the thing I'm excited for, you know, this is the third time I've ran this course at Battle Road, and the course just keeps getting better. Uh, this class coming up, we're actually going to be going to be teaching a, you know, more advanced topic of doing a glass shoot. And that will be, you know, shooting through panes of glass, uh, to get a target on the other side and understanding the science behind that because that's a whole new world, a whole new aspect of shooting. A lot of science involved, a lot of factors to consider, you know, everything from bullet selection to distance, and it really enforces part of the ballistics, uh, talking about the phases of our external trajectory, uh, right. education, sleep, and precession. You know, it really is going to you know, highlight and demonstrate to the shooters the differences between those phases. So really right. looking forward to running that. Bullet impacts, uh, if it's a bullet impact, some type of uh, uh, material while it's still in the beginning phase and it hasn't uh, and it hasn't spun up uh, straight yet, that's a whole lot different than uh, than it hitting something after it has stabilized, right? Yes, of course, certainly. And and this is a very advanced subject that isn't taught at many places at all. You know, actually of the five sniper courses that I've been through, they've only ever been taught at one of them. And it's incredibly important, especially for law enforcement, where they, more than any other group of shooters, uh, get faced with shooting through barriers such as windows, um, you know, whether it's house windows or car windows, windshields, etc. And there's a lot of things that you've got to consider. Uh, most, you know, two most important things probably be, well, three most important things is your distance to the target um, and the distance between the target and the barrier, you know, whatever the window or whatever may be, you know, and bullet selection. 
But uh, like I said, when you first shoot uh, our bullet, there's, when we're talking about external ballistics, there's three phases, and that's mutation, sweep, and precession. And for this, you know, we're only going to talk about the first few phases, mutation and sleep. And what that happens is your bullet starts out like a, a child's toy, a top. You know, when you first spin a toy top, it starts off wobbly. Well, our bullet does the exact same thing. It starts off wobbly, and then it begins to stabilize. And that's, we, in the shooting community, we call that going to sleep. And for like a long time growing up, I'd read, you know, a lot of gun magazines or whatever, and I would read about bullets going to sleep. I never really understood what that meant because nobody ever talked about the other phases, and they never talked about mutation, which is, you know, it was just like, oh, you know, you want to make sure your bullets are asleep for a bench rest competition. And I never understood what that meant. Well, what that means is depending on your bullet length and velocity, it needs a certain amount of distance before it is fully stabilized and is spinning true. Well, this is all important because when we shoot through a barrier such as glass, we want to make sure that we've had enough distance and off from the target to make sure our bullet has gone to sleep. Because if we're too close to the target and we impact the barrier while we're still in that first phase of mutation, you know, the bullet isn't, you know, spinning on its center yet. You know, it's still slightly wobbly like that toy top starting out. And there's no way of predicting where it's going to deflect through, um, you know, and if it's going to hit the target on the other side or not. So doing the glass shoot this time, be the first class that we ran this for, you know, we're going to be able to demonstrate that um, you know, up close and personal and be able to show the relationship between mutation and sleep, um, you know, the effects on how close the target is to the barrier, you know, the relationship there, and really looking forward to that for this upcoming class. Right. And you should be able to see uh, if, the, if the bullet is in uh, uh, the first phase and it is not stabilized, you should actually be able to see that from the hole it makes in the glass when we have up. Yes. Yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll turn and uh, we'll have a paper behind it, so we'll be able to also see the any deviations that it, that it causes it to make from uh, the intended target. So I think that's mm-hmm. going to be a, a I think it's going to be a very uh, uh, well worked and uh, and demonstration of that. But, uh, Real quickly, in the, in the last couple of minutes that we have, let's talk about uh, about what's going to be coming up after that. Because uh, two days after the the precision rifle course, we'll be running a two day stocking and camouflage course, and uh, and I think this is uh, is a very important uh, bit of uh, information for folks to have because. And I try and tell folks tonight, it's not just for the for the law enforcement or or military because uh, everybody who's going to be out uh, hunting this coming season, uh, they need to know how to either move across and through terrain uh, under observation by the animals uh, uh, as with a, with as little disturbance as possible, attracting as little attention to themselves as possible. And then how, once they get in their hide, in their uh, stand or whatever they have, how to remain in that position and remain undetected 
until the opportunity for the shot presented itself. <clears throat> so uh, on uh, the Saturday and Sunday, the weekend after the 16th and 17th, after the Precision Rifle course, uh, we'll be holding the uh, stocking and camouflage course. And uh, uh, tell folks how that's going to run, because I think that's going to that's be a very interesting class. Right. I'm really excited to be teaching that course here. It's going to start off with a very extensive class on camouflage and movement techniques. And I'm going to go over different types of camouflage, um, you know, considerations, and then I'm going to cover movement techniques, how to actually move through the woods, and then basically some strategy, you know, or tactics, whatever you want to call it, on route planning, how to approach you know, a target, uh, whether it's something that has some sort of hostile threat, you know, for the military law enforcement guys, or, you know, whether it's, you know, that wary white-tailed buck, um, you know, for the hunter. Try to be able to plan a route out unobserved to be able to get in and then build a firing position, you know, in the field. You know, I try to emphasize using as much support as possible. You know, and that's whether if you've got a bipod, you know, if you select a spot where you're going to be able to see above the grass or whatever, um, or if we need to make some sort of field expedient system, you know, all that will be covered. So the, the class that's going to cover camouflage, movement techniques, route planning, um, you know, gear considerations, you know, and it's the equipment is it's all personal preference and up to the students. You know, if they want to, you know, do a military-type stock and come in full ghillie suit, by all means. You know, if they want to come and try just going through with, you know, their regular, you know, civilian clothes or hunting outfit, you know, it's, I'd highly encourage that. Um, but they're going to be under observation by me. And from after the class, the whole rest of the course is all a hands-on field exercise where first we're going to do a concealment exercise where, Without me around, the students will go out. They're going to set up in a position you know, that they construct themselves, um, you know, a shooting position, and then I will come back after an allotted amount of time and go through a walking sequence. I'm going to try to identify them, see if their positions were, you know, well hidden enough, you know, that they would be able to fire from the position undetected. And then from there, we'll actually move into stocks where I will be set up at a stationary point and the students are going to have to move through terrain uh, with a rifle and blanks, uh, no live ammo uh, for this portion, and move through undetected and be able to build a position essentially in front of me without me seeing them while I actively scan the binoculars and be able to fire you know, blank rounds and at the same time go through a walking sequence where there's a neutral party out there that I'm directing through the radio to try to catch them. And, you know, those that properly build a position and, you know, get a shot off at me, they're going to have to go through and properly identify a letter or number that I hold up, you know, to prove that they can actually see me from their position. And then they'll be graded on whether or not their scope set was appropriate to the distance, if their position was stable enough, um, and so on. And that will lead into eventual live fire stalks on the second day, where the students not only are going to be firing a blank at me at the end of the stalk, 
I'm going to be placing a steel silhouette target in place of myself, moving off range, and the students will actually have to engage that target with live ammo uh, from the position that they built with whatever scope setting that they had on their rifle at the time of the stock and see, you know, if they actually would have been successful real world or not. You know, there'll be several right. stocks throughout the weekend. So they'll get a lot of practice, a lot of feedback and critiques. Um, you know, if I see them, I'm going to let them know what I saw. You know, this, this is what stood out. You know, it was this reflection, this coloration was wrong, whatever. So it's going to be a big learning experience for them to, to move under observation, you know, from you know, somebody trained in detection such as myself. Yeah, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a fantastic course, and uh, and like I said, anybody that's going to be uh, out hunting, uh, the military, law enforcement, uh, and we'll have uh, we'll have some of all these guys attending. Uh, it's going to be applicable for you. I mean, whether you whether you are, uh, as you said, if you're working in a hostile environment. Or if you were just uh, uh, trying to do a stalk out to your stand uh, or to a shooting position that you want to use that doesn't have a stand or anything, you're going to create your own, uh, you know, temporary hide or stand. This is uh, stuff that you're going to need. And uh, I'm going to post some pictures uh, on the uh, on the website, BattleRoadUSA.com, uh, when I get through that uh, folks have sent me who have already started working on their uh, – Working on their ghillie suits and stuff because uh, some of them are uh, some of them are pretty wild. Uh, one of the guys is coming, Vic. Uh, uh, what did you call him the other day? The Wookie, uh, because he looks like it looks like Bigfoot. When I first saw the picture, I go, "Him, that's Bigfoot right there." Well, listen, uh, we're at the end of the show, and I want to thank you, John, for uh, for taking the time out to speak to folks tonight. And, uh, and certainly for uh, running this course here at Battle Road. And uh, there's still a few slots left if you guys want to uh, hurry up and uh, uh, and get registered and attend for either the Precision Rifle or the Stalking course. Just go to BattleRoadUSA.com. Down at the bottom of the uh, homepage, you'll see the uh, the classes listed and the uh, and the registration. All right, all right, guys. Thanks, uh, everybody. Sam D, thank you uh, for being here every week, as you always do. I couldn't do the show without you. John, thanks for coming on tonight, and uh, I'll see you. I'll actually see you in about uh, two minutes. All right, the rest of you guys, we'll see you uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central, for uh, for another show. All right? Thanks. God bless everybody.
gonna take to make us realize that we're not living free. 